Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Welcome to another edition of SFP Now and Happy New Year! Um, for our first show back this year, we, we have uh, the return of Julian Chambliss with um, his Beyond Impossible segment and we'll be playing that later on. It's uh, an interview that he's done with uh, Stacey Robinson. And for those that don't know, uh, Stacey Robinson is, is um, an, Arthur Sch- an Arthur Schomburg fellow um, he completed his Masters of Fine Art at the University of Buffalo and he's originally from Albany, New York and he graduated from Fayetteville State University with a Bachelor of Arts. So correct me if I'm sorry, like, getting these pronunciations all wrong, <laughs> uh, Risa. I you sound pretty good. You sound pretty good. Okay. Well, basically, Stacey Robinson's art, it, it speculates futures where black people are free from colonial influences um, his collected works uh, reside at Modern Graphics in Berlin, Bucknell University, and the Schomburg Centre for Research in Black Culture. So that's the interview that we've got coming up a little bit later on. But first we have the TV segment with um, with Raisa. So, you know, Raisa, you've had quite, um, had quite a break from the usual TV shows, um, i.e. Arrow and um, The Flash and all that. Um, before we get into Doctor Who and um, and all these other great shows, should we sort of very quickly discuss the uh, DC shows, given that DC Action Hour is not going to be on to next week? Yes. Um, so far, Legends is my favorite of the of the shows, simply because it is um, as uh, wonderfully batshit as it is. It's actually the the closest thing to Doctor Who that I think um, an American or North American producers have been able to give us. Um, yeah, um, I'd kind of agree with you in so far as the uh, time travel element, um, but it kind of puts me more in mind of any Doctor Who when the Doctor yeah. didn't know what he was doing when he was sort of like, um, <laughs> you know. Whereas one week it could end up on Planet of the Daleks and next week it could end up in, in um, Edwardian England or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So. And it's that, it's that anything goes uh, ethos to, to Legends that I really appreciate because I feel like the other shows are getting trapped in, trapped in their own CW-ness, trapped in their own angst. And it's just, it's, it, it doesn't work. And I mean, it's really kind of hard because characters like Supergirl and The Martians their starting points are extinction and genocide. So they naturally have things to angst about organically, that they should be angsting about organically. And yet what they're angsting about, or at least what Supergirl is angsting about, is the CW romance crap. And it's just, it doesn't work. It really yeah, doesn't work. but, you know, you could argue that everyone angst is about romance crap. 
at some stage or other. <laughs> you know, and, and romance crap is something that, you know, we go through whether you're a teenager, whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, or, you know, or even sort of like old and decrepit when you're in your sort of like 70s and 80s. <laughs> True, but it's, it's, it's not simply that it's happening, but it's that, it's that the CW wallows in it um, to an extent that just bugs and um, I wish they would tone it down just a tad. Yeah. And if they're gonna, if they're gonna do angst, and they're gonna do romantic angst, tie the romantic angst to the more organic um, extinction angst, because the two characters who are involved in this not romance thing quite are Monel and Kara, and Monel and Kara are come from two different planets that were affected by the same extinction events. And logically, some of the things that Kara should be angsting about if she's going to be doing that, apart from the general romance angle, is the fact that, as far as she knows, Monel was the only person who was, you know, um, genetically compatible with her. She is one of the last Kryptonians alive. Um, the only other male Kryptonian is a blood relation of hers, so she can't have a baby with him. And so she's so she's out of a uh, sperm donor at the very least with Monel, and she doesn't know where else she's going to go. Her own sister is having you know baby issues in terms of her own breakup with her girlfriend. You think they would at least thematically tie those concerns together? Yeah, and, and she can't really have a relationship with a human because she'd melt his genitals, wouldn't she? That you know that might even literally happen for all we know, you know, yeah. but. I mean, in the comics, um, we know that Clark eventually goes on to have kids, but they haven't established what the rules are for pro procreation within the CW universe. This is an Elseworld. The CW shows are technically Elseworlds. They could create new rules. And they haven't established what that is. And I'm not saying she shouldn't have romantic angst. I'm just saying, given her other underlying problems, those underlying problems would color that romantic angst. And I don't think the writers have thought that in depth about it. And it's, it's, it's going to bug me until they start doing that. Um, because all she's worrying about now is the surface level stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think what they should do is they should have her uh, having a big sort of like uh, spite with Monel, and then all of a sudden she has to save the world. And go off, and um, and and um, you know, saving the world takes uh, precedence over the big fight with Manel. Yes, that's what needs to happen, really. And she she needs to wake to up, and I'm, I'm I'm hoping that this um this this first episode back is, is where she was where that happens. Um, I am also very curious to, to see Brainiac Five because he's coming in, mm -hmm. so that's going to be interesting. Um, I've seen briefly. We've seen him in a trailer, and he looks quite interesting. Just the aesthetic of him yeah, looks quite so. Yeah. It should be good. Well, I spent my birthday beating the crap out of Brainiac. Oh, really? Not not literally. Well, kind of. Yeah, kind of literally. It was a video game, so. Was it I, was it the injustice thing? Yeah, I was playing Injustice Two. Um, I I got it for my uh, as a birthday present mm. um, from from my uh, my sister. She gave, basically sent me some Amazon vouchers and I spent it on a couple of games. And I got Injustice Two, and um, I got to beat the snot out of Brainiac. Um, awesome! It's not easy. No. <laughs> um, you know, but it's it re you know, I don't know whether anyone's actually uploaded the the Injustice Two game movie, you know, sort of thing because um basically as you're playing the game you beat each opponent up and there's a bit of storyline related to each opponent and uh, 
and it sort of moves on a segment and moves on a segment. And basically, the um, in the in the Injustice universe, the various superheroes are kind of at, at a war with each other. Um, the storyline is Lois Lane has been killed, and Superman's kind of like gone. Um, extreme right wing, you know, criminals must be punished. They must die, sort of thing. Oh Lord, so he and, became the, he's becoming the Punisher version of himself. Yeah. That's going to be fun. And, and Batman's become the more liberal version, which is kind of funny, really, considering that Batman's probably more right, right wing traditionally than Superman is. Yes. Um, but, you know, on Superman's side, you've got Wonder Woman and, uh, and, and a few other people. Batman's got, uh, you know, got, got, Got um, sort of like Harley Quinn as an ally and and Catwoman and um, and a few other people. I think he's got um, Arrow, you know, the Green Arrow and uh, Black Canary as an ally as well. Sort cool. Of thing. Oh. And I have to say, I'm really enjoying. Um, this has been a stronger season of Arrow. I'm enjoying it for the most part. It has, yeah. And the storyline in, in in Injustice in in Injustice Two, anyways, they go up against Brainiac, and the, oh, wow. the, two, the two sides have to come together to fight Brainiac. So, you know, basically Batman and Superman have to bury the hatchet and and kind of reform the Justice League, as it were. Supergirl's got quite a prominent part in Injustice 2, um, and she she ends up siding with Batman um, against Superman by the end of the the game sort of thing. So that's a bit of a major spoiler. But it's a the the, the storyline to it. It's actually it's actually pretty good as you played it through. It's quite it's quite compelling as you played it. Sort of thing, but maybe not as com- not as compelling if you're watching it, unless you're really into into the superhero sort of thing. So, ah. so it might be worth you checking out if you can find the injustice storyline on on YouTube. See if someone's posted yeah, game. Yeah, they probably somebody uploaded. I'll look. I'll look for it. You know. Yeah. So, um. So that that's what I that's what I've been doing um over the last couple of days uh with the last few days of my holiday really. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of liking Arrow, but um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all those villains so far. No, it's, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like they they took the cue from Legends and that they wanted multiple villains, but Legends is handling their multiple villains more effectively than Arrow is. Yeah, plus Legends had the best multiple villains as well. I mean, they had some, yes, you know, um, they had Damien Dark. They they, they had Zoom. I think in order for um, in order for Song Arrow to have uh, some villains, they they need to bring Deadshot back. But it's not going to happen. Um, they do. Oh, by the way, we're officially not going to see um, Deathstroke again on television for quite some time. Uh, Guggenheim gave an uh, gave an interview where he um, said that uh, Deathstroke had been back on the table during that short window when they were able to bring Matt Bennett back, but then um, DC closed in on him again and, and rescinded the rights because they uh, gave it to the, uh, the cinematic universe for Joe Magnella's version. Doesn't surprise me at least. Uh, I mean, you know, they, they need to sort of like quit with this cinematic universe bullcrap and just sort of like uh, make up their mind what they're doing here. Yes, it's, um, um, it's both. Both companies need to do the exact opposite. DC needs to quit making movies, and Marvel needs to quit making TV, and they each need to focus on the half they got right. Mm-hmm. And, just call, and just call it a day. DC needs to keep keep continue the TV and the animated films, and um, and well, the animated films just, are beautiful. I love them. Yeah, I mean the animated films. I think DC does the best best job of them. You know, um, whereas the. Uh, the, the Marvel films not quite as good. No. Um, still still quite watchable, just yes, don't no, quite get it right. 
Um, I mean, Marvel really had its moment with animation back in the uh, 1990s with the X-Men cartoons. Oh, God, Um, I I loved them. I I, I watched um, both of the Spider-Man and the X-Men several times through. I adored those iterations very much. Mm -hmm. Well, not, they've not managed to get it right since then. Uh, really. No, they haven't. And, and they've done Spider-Man to death. Oh God! You know, so it's like one of those uh, one of those things. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of enjoying Arrow. I'm enjoying Legends, but I don't really have a favorite at the moment. You know, I'm sort of like I'm hoping the Flash sort of like starts picking up now that the the, the big reveal of the villains sort of like you know. The the villains' plan has sort of like come into a, come into effect, and it, and obviously it is going to be a big trial. Um, I'm just hoping the trial doesn't go on for weeks. I was going to say if they if they drag the trial on for more than four episodes, you're going to have a problem. If they drag the trial on for more than four episodes, they're going to lose viewers. Yes, you know it's a, it's as simple as that. You know. Um, I mean, I don't know what they did with the trial in the comics. Whether they just did it one issue or if they did it several issues, but it was it was. The overall arc, I think, was like a... I don't haven't read it, but I, my impression from research I did was that the overall arc was like a year long, but that the actual trial was only part of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but then people have different attention spans when they're reading comics than when they're watching TV. And I think I just know from experience that even though certain fans joke about Flash being on over DCU because Barry is the CSI and, and, and the uh, Jesse L. Martin connection, the fact is that they are not on order. And if they drag the court proceedings on for more than four episodes, they're going to have real problems. The fans are not going to sit for that. Not, not the TV fans, anyway. And the ratings for all the CW superhero series um, are down. They're down, yes. You know. And, and the, the other thing, too, is that for those who don't know, um, the CW, for various logistical reasons, can't have more than 10 hours of scheduling a week for the evening shows that aren't, that aren't reruns. And so in order to accommodate another DC show in the form of Black Lightning, they've had to double up and split the Supergirl and Legends schedules. Mm-hmm. And so when the shows come back, four episodes of Supergirl are going to air on Monday, then Supergirl's going to go on hiatus for the remainder of the Legends series, and then Supergirl's going to come back and then air in June. Um, some more paranoid fans, um, like Jeff, um, are operating on the assumption that one of those shows that gets split is going to get cancelled and that they're testing the testing the, the uh, waters to see which of them it is. Um, I can see that argument, and I hope he's wrong, um, but if one of them gets cancelled, it's probably going to be Legends. And mm-hmm. if it is um, if it is Legends, I just hope they um, put the characters back and end the storylines so that we don't get cliffhangers. Yeah, I'm hoping, the, I'm hoping like yourself, they put the, char- the characters back in such a way that they they can be used to, to guest on the other shows. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is if it's Legends, um, they need to justify why they're breaking the team up beyond the fact that the show is being canceled because that team, as, as messed up and, and, uh, and magnificent seven as they are, dirty dozen as they are, um, they, they can't just take Sarah Lance's captaincy of the Wave Rider away from her because her whole identity right now is tied up in the fact that she's actually found a niche, you know, as, as the captain of the Wave Rider. So if they're going to take that away from her on the narrative level because the show is being canceled, they need to really explain why that is. 
Yeah, and you know, and, and the thing is, you know, Sarah Nance is such a cool character. Period. Yes. You know, she's sort yes. of been, you know, she's been weight the strongest out of the legends uh, throughout, but she was also strong strongest in in Arrow, I think, when when she was in Arrow. Yes, you know? well, that's uh, that's all down to Kitty Lots. She's just one of those people who, you know, kills it in whatever she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue for me, uh, in terms of in terms of the villains, is that. Damien Dark, played by Neil McDonough, is so charismatic and so perfectly what's necessary for these kinds of storylines that even though it will be logical to rest him at the end of whatever this arc is, they're going to have a really hard time finding a villain to replace him going forward, assuming that they do go forward. Because, um, I mean, even going back into season one, when the villain was their unfortunate variation of Bandle Savage, and we had that, that great scene in season one, where you had Bandle Savage um, at the James Bond-style weapons auction, and um, Neil, uh, Neil McDonough uh, guest-starred as uh, Damian Dark to just do some universe building, and he just showed up at the same auction. Neil McDonough kind of wiped the floor with Casper Crump, and he wasn't even trying. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be very hard for them going forward to find equally charismatic actors to pull off these more old school villain roles. Um, that's going to be interesting. Yes, it's true. I mean, I'm not sure about the, uh, the, 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 the line-up of villains that got in Arrow. I don't think any of them is particularly strong, to be honest. And that's, really, and that's really sad because Michael Emerson should be absolutely killing it on several different levels all at once and they're they're wasting him they're not writing him the way they need to yeah they're not giving they're not really giving him enough i mean to be honest um uh, I'm, I'm i'm quite surprised i didn't get emerson to do the thinker because i think he would have been awesome they, they, he, he would have killed it as the thinker that said while we're on the topic of the thinker neil sandalance an actor who i wasn't familiar with prior to his arc as the thinker but he rocked it he, yeah. he, he rocked it to the point where I actually, I hope that I hope the new kid can pull this off because I actually miss him now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was a bit disappointed that they got got rid of Neil, you know, Sandal Man. Uh, Sandalands, yeah. And yeah. What, one of the one of the little character beats that I really appreciated, you know how they, you know how they made um, their version of Deathstroke Australian to accommodate Man and Bennett. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they made their version of The Thinker played by Neil Sandalands from South Africa because Neil Sandalands is from South Africa. So they accommodated him that way, which is really, really sweet. And um, what's interesting is that <clears throat> there are two iterations of the thinker. One, one is the one with the thinking cap, and then one is the one who actually has <clears throat> um, telepathic powers. So I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it too by having two iterations in one storyline. Mm. Yeah, and the, um, and the new kid actually has telekinesis. Abilities. So you know they're they're trying to they're, and hopefully hopefully he'll do all right. Hopefully he'll be okay. But I just, I just thought, wow, that's not a bait and switch I frankly wanted. Um, so, but okay, you know, that's what mm. they went for. Yeah, I mean, I thought the way they framed up Barry in that that episode is quite clever. I mean, that for me, that final episode of um, of of Flash, the mid season, the mid season one, was probably uh-huh. the strongest of the season. It was. It was. You know, it's. Um, I mean, you know, so I've been marking Supergirl a bit higher this season than, than last season. And um, I, I was actually cheering and whooping when she got the snot beat out of her. I just um, love that. Yeah, um, I don't think <clears throat> it would be all right if I thought that they would actually show her being knocked down a pig and actually have her react to that. 
but I don't think they're going to. Mm-hmm. They, they, um, they actually need to because she she needs need knocking down a peg. She's song out. She's too um, arrogant, really. And, yeah, uh, the, I know that you and Jeff were kind of complaining about this, the difference between season one and season two. The difference between in season one was that she was on CBS at that point. I think I think the issues in season two with the arrogance and a lot of the other stuff that's that CW. I think we can blame the CW for that. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with that network. Yes, they're bankrolling a lot of generally very solid shows, but the price for that is CW internal logic. And the CW drags down its own narratives with its unfortunate internal logic. Um, The thing it does not understand about the teen audience is that teens are simply younger versions of the adults they become. Uh And not not all of us had high thresholds for that level of angst. I I mean, even when I was the teen demo, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, I had a a significantly low threshold for that kind of angst. I always did. And it simply got, it simply got, uh, my bar for that angst simply got lower and lower as I got older. But that propensity for low angst appreciation was always there. And I think the problem that the CW is having is that they think teens are one size fits all, or they hope teens are one size fits all. They do. I mean, I, I, um, you know, I, I, I as a teen um, was very angsty. But that said, I had my reasons <laughs> to be yeah. angsty. I was, um, I was the same. I, I was very angsty as a teen. But uh, again, as you said, I had my reasons. I mean. It, it ties into my psychology ties into my response to Supergirl. If you're going to angst, angst about your actual problems, mm-hmm. you know, not about, not about this, this surface crap. You'll find another boyfriend or not, whatever. So this isn't your actual problem. Your problem is that you're a member, you're, you're the remnant of an extinction event. Yeah. I, I want to see her angsty about why she couldn't beat that, beat, beat the, um, I forget the name of the thing now. Rain. Why she couldn't be Rain. I, I want to see her angsty, uh, asking herself why she wasn't able to sort of like, you know, stand up to the onslaught of attacks that Rain put her through. That's that's something to be angsty about as opposed to being angsty about relationship issues. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the relationship issues are an issue and they should be covered. But they need to be covered within a more holistic psychological landscape. People have more than one problem at a time. <clears throat> and the problem with CW shows is that it's like it, it's it's like they stop on a dime and just do the wallowing and then start up start up the narrative again like that's how life and or narratives should work mm-hmm. they need to they need to integrate all of this more coherently into one thing so that it all just sort of flows and it doesn't feel like you have these these um, inorganic stopping points and that's something that the CW hasn't quite grasped mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why. I honestly don't know why. It's a systemic problem. Yeah, maybe it's because um, it's a it's a group of older adults trying to write for teens. Maybe they should get some twenty something writers in there. Yeah, because I know is whatever problems you have, whatever your problems are in life, the problems don't stop because your life goes on. And your life doesn't stop because your problems go on. It's all one thing. Mm-hmm. And you have to fig- figure out what your coping mechanisms are. And they're either constructive or they're not. But you have to go forward no matter what. And there is no forward momentum in CW shows. They just stop and hit their heads on the pavement. And then stop hitting their heads on the pavement. And then suddenly remember that they have a narrative going on around them. And come back to that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what the hell? You can't maintain a show like that. Okay. Well, quickly moving on. Um, have you seen Riverdale? Have you checked it out at all? I, I haven't. No. I haven't, but I'm thinking of doing so. You know, just to, just so I can say that I've checked it out. 
um, because got we got the first two seasons. Uh, well, we got the first season and the uh, all the new episodes that are coming out at the moment on Netflix here in the UK. So it's, uh, it's basing in Netflix um, exclusive here in the UK, much like Star Trek Discovery, which returns this weekend. Um, should we very quickly go over some Discovery theories? Yes, the big one uh, well, relates. To, well, yeah. we've done the big one already, I think. In, oh, in oh, the we've done the big one. Um, but there's a, there's another biggie, and that is that Captain Lorca. Um, there's a lot of people that think that Captain Lorca is actually from the Mirror Universe, but he's somehow replaced the real Captain Lorca. That there, I could buy that if they chose to go that route, it would work. I, I, I could definitely buy it, and there's you know there's, there's actually some pretty strong clues in the uh, in the in the mid season finale. Uh, in that, you know, so like um, Stamets didn't do 33 jump, jumps because Lorca actually intervened on the last one. And yes. also, uh, when, when when they set course for that starbase and Stamets makes that last jump, Lorca yeah. does something to, to the coordinates. Yeah, he does. And when they end up in the middle of the nowhere space, he doesn't seem too concerned where no. everyone else is. Um, there's, there's also another thing. Um, he had that very, very intimate moment with uh, Admiral Cornwell. Yes. And Cornwell freaked out and she seen some scars on his back that she hadn't recognised from any from their prior intimate encounters. Yeah. Um, and she also freaked out by the fact that he had a phaser under his pillow. Yes. Um, you know. And she chopped it. She chopped it up to PTSD, but it might be more than that. It it might well be more than that, but have you heard the um, have you heard the theory about um, Cornwall as well? No, I missed that. They reckon that she's uh, the character of Neef or, or ne- Neff from um, what's the name now? Um, what the name? What's the name? The episode? It was the episode on the on the penal colony where where there was a Neff. She was a, a reformed. She was a reformed prisoner who had, um, had, had taken upon taken on the role of being a therapist. Now, I can't remember the name of the actual Star Trek original series episode off the top of my head. Um, I've got an article coming out on Monsters and Critics about it tomorrow. And, uh-huh. um, and, and basically, um, the actress that plays Cornwell, she's almost the spitting image of the actress that played Neff in that, in that episode. Uh-huh. They, they look very, very much alike, which, you know, kind, kind of... You know, is needing people to believe that she could be um, that character who was on that penal comedy, uh, but ten years prior. Mm, okay. So you know that that that's a that's a fun one, and the other fun one is um, to do with Stamets as well. That that he could well be going or Gary Mitchell in the uh, in in the, in the new episode. They that could also be justified if they chose to go that route. Yeah. Well, it could be because of the whole spore drive thing, uh-huh. because he's 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 going to parts of space in you know when he hooks up to that spore drive, but the ship hasn't visited yet. No, and 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 stuff like that. That's what what I can understand about it. when he's in, in when he's hooked up to the spore drive, uh, because of that mechanism, he's able to sort of like pretty much surf the entirety of space, and it's uh-huh. basically his consciousness that's going to these places, um, sort of thing. Yeah, and yeah. you know, who's to say that he didn't visit that same part of space that Captain Kirk visited with uh, Gary Mitchell in in where no, where no man has gone before? Right, right. So somewhere around there, there's that uh, that barrier. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, and in order for him to be hooked up to the thing in the first place, there's got to be something, some sort of like PSI thing going yeah. on as well. Yeah. Because um, if his PSI wasn't at a particular level, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't have the uh, the empathy and the uh, and and the ability to actually merge with that drive. No, he wouldn't. You know. So it's um, so I, I'm kind of um, I'm kind of a little excited about the return of the series. Um, in ter- terms of where where it could be going with these theories, but I'm also hoping that they sort of like uh, that that the Klingons are, are, are normalised by the end of it. <laughs> I'm I'm hoping so too, and I'm I'm hoping that whatever's going on, if that if that mole theory turns out to be correct, that the fact that he was made to look like a human explains why the earlier versions of the Klingons look so human. Ah, so you reckon it could be something to do with the uh, with, with him? Yes. Hmm, that's, that's actually an interesting idea. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not holding my breath. I'm not uh, either. Given, I'm not either. Given that it's all like, it's, it's Robert, you know, it's not Robert O'Ars, it's Alex Kurtzman's show, isn't it, really? Yeah, and yeah. And he, he kind of went completely against what 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 the long long term Star Trek fans particularly enjoyed with the uh, with the Star Trek movies, and he's kind of doing it again here. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, they, well, basically, the thing that we have to come to grips with as as old school Star Trek fans is that the people currently in charge of the franchise are basically treating it like an Elseworld. Uh-huh. And that's okay to the extent that, that they're producing solid narrative, but old school Star Trek fans are simply not going to get everything they want anymore. Um, though these shows are not being entirely constructed for us; they're being constructed for, you know, the, the current generation, which is fine. Which is fine. But I think, frankly, that the current generation is losing a lot of a lot of what made Star Trek awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. You know, to be honest, Star Trek fans never really got everything they wanted, even when even when it seemed that they were getting what everything they were they wanted. True, true. Roddenberry was hampered. Um, the producers of Star Trek: Next Generation were hampered. They were all hampered, but um, they were still getting closer to it than than we're getting now. Um, and I and I basically regard the Star Trek films and the Star Trek series as an Elseworld. And that's okay, because um, Elseworld stuff is very good. I mean, I've, I've been reading, you know, Elseworld DC comics, and the DC Elseworlds are excellent, and there's nothing wrong with Elseworlds. Um, what I simply would wish they would do is acknowledge that these are Elseworlds, the way that DC has an Elseworlds imprint, and just call it a day. There would be a lot more honesty to it. Uh, there would be, and but I think we can console ourselves that we still got Star Trek novels and comics that are based in the Next Generation universe and DS9 universe and stuff like that. And you know, um, we, we're lucky to have those. Yes, to be honest, yes. because CBS could very well have easily said, "Well, um, the, these the, these sort of like uh, characters and uh, the, these sort of like iterations." Of Star Trek are no longer relevant, so we don't want we we're not going to allow anyone to publish them anymore. Uh, we only want uh, Star Trek Discovery books published. It'd be very easy for CBS and Paramount to turn around and just say that. And eventually, they might do that. For all we know, oh, um, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> because some some of the uh, some some of the stuff that they've turned out with those with those books over the years has been awesome. I mean, I've not actually read a Star Trek book in years. 
But I've read a few. I've read a few, but not very many. Yeah. When I when I did read them, they were awesome. They were all all, all really great adventures. Um, um, a great a great tr- you know a great trilogy of books is the uh, Cam Nooney and Singh trilogy, which uh, Greg Cox did. Mm, okay. And that that was actually awesome because it talks about um, his early days, um, how 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 he was raised, how he was brought up. Um, how, how the eugenics wars came about and it actually takes you through the eugenics wars uh, to eventually when Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln intervened and um, then, then the um, and, and, and I think the second one deals with um, deal, deals with his exile and, and the third one deals with um, sort of like um, um, the knife he gave to Pride you know once he was dumped on City Alpha uh, uh-huh. thing, uh, you know, the sort of crap that they had to deal with. Uh-huh. So, so the, the, the final one of the trilogy is kind of like a prequel to The Wrath of Khan. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Um, cool. But they're awesome books. That That's actually a trilogy of books I'd highly recommend you try and get hold of. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, um, so like, um, on to um, more, more, more random stuff. Uh, what did you think of the Doctor Who? Christmas episode. I actually, I, I thought it was one of the stronger Christmas episodes, um, which isn't saying much because usually the Christmas episodes are kind of throwaway. But I think because they were saying goodbye to twelve, uh, there was more more depth and resonance than we usually get in the Christmas episodes. I I, I agree with you, but I kind of marked it down a little bit because um, it relied way way too heavily on the um, on on the fandom on the fan base, having known what had gone on in the season prior to it, you know, with the links with the uh, Puddle Girl uh, and stuff yes. like that. Um, yeah. The Puddle Girl kind of being testimony yeah. and, and all, all of that stuff. Um, if you'd if you'd skipped a year of Doctor Who and come into this uh, Christmas special cold, uh, you wouldn't have known what was going on and it wouldn't have made a whole, you know, whole lot of sense to you. No, no. So, True. So I kind of gave it an eight out of ten because it relied way too much on 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 uh, on, on the audience uh, actually knowing what what was what was going on. Yes, I did. I did really like the fact that the captain was uh, the brigadier's father. That was awesome. Yeah, but we kind of saw that coming. That was kind of telegraphed before it even aired. True. True. Um... I liked um, David Bradley crushed it. He did, but I, I actually felt his performance in the uh, Big Finish first Doctor Adventures was that far was far stronger. It was, it was far stronger. I think I think and that I think that's actually reasonable because at the point he did the Big Finish audios, he had the character under him. Whereas when he was doing the um, when he was doing the special, uh, he was still trying to figure it out because it, it's not a minor thing to go from playing the actor who played that role in a biopic to actually playing that role. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it really isn't. And he did a, a, a remarkable job. So, but it, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't make sense that by the time he got to the big finish, he'd be um, stronger. Apparently he did the big finish ones before he did the special. Oh, okay. Um, if I, if I, if I uh, listen to the extras correctly on that, but it did, it did, it did, it did say that he had actually got the big finish job. Um, at roughly the same time as he got the special job, and I think he, I think he'd recorded some of the big finished stuff prior to it. Before, okay, yeah, no, so. yeah. I, I, um, I usually listen to the extras, but I didn't, I didn't have time when I when I was listening to the box that box set, so I, I skipped those. But yeah, wow. I think what it was, I think it was the way the first Doctor was written in the um in the TV series versus how it was written in the big finish. 
Yeah, whereas in Big Finish, he was proactive, and then in the um, TV episode, he was more reactive. I think that was the difference. Yeah, and he was also more politically incorrect in the uh, TV episodes. <laughs> that made me mad. Yeah, that was rather impressive. I just, I, <laughs> I just want to cringe. But they, they needed to put that in there because the, the generational divide from the 60s to now, had to be addressed. It, yeah. it did, and, and also, um, generationally in the 60s, um, you know, Hartnell's doctor at the time was sort of like very much your sort of like Edwardian gentleman. So yes. he, he, he was kind of out of time with, with what was happening in the 60s, which yes. is partly why the character was so appealing, I think, it, you know, within that era. Um, but I thought Bradley Apson killed it. So did Capaldi. I thought the the two two actors worked really way, really well together. Um, yes. I really enjoyed the scene where where Bill asks the asks the first Doctor, you know, what what he was running to as opposed to what he was running away from. I thought that was actually yes. really 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 good. Yes, that was really good. And. Um... That said, at some point during the franchise's run, they're actually going to have to deal with what happened back there. Yeah. The only thing I was really unhappy with about the special was the, um, was the 13th Doctor losing the TARDIS. I mean, yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think we're going to have to put up with that because Chibnall has said in interviews that he very specifically wants another TARDIS. So that's simply part of his TARDIS overhaul. Mm. And, yeah, and, you know... Uh, you could also uh, call Chris Chibnall a sexist here because the first thing the female doctor does is she uses a TARDIS. Loses <laughs> a TARDIS. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like a lot, a lot of uh, misogynistic people say, oh, we don't want another female captain in Star Trek. The last one got lost in the Delta Quadrant for seven years. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's true. My, my biggest fear for her, just in terms of basic logistics, is she's been jettisoned from the TARDIS and she's literally hurtling toward Earth with no space capsule. So like, how is she going to land? Where is she going to land? And, you know, I wouldn't mind her being without the TARDIS from on a narrative perspective, if it was actually, if it turned out to be a callback to her exile and her unit days. And some of the first people she comes in contact with are Kate Stewart and Osgood. And she says, you know, I've regenerated. I'm without my TARDIS. Can I just bump with you guys for a bit? Mm. And and she just goes back to unit for a while until they sort out the TARDIS issue and it becomes the narrative for like half of the first year or whatever. Uh, you know, I you know if Chip, if Chibnall say that he wants to get rid of the TARDIS, I think I think he can kiss goodbye to a lot of the viewers. He's not going to get rid of it permanently, but I think he wants to get rid of it to have an excuse to give her a refurbed or a different TARDIS uh, when she gets it back. It's going to look different. Oh, so it's not going to be a blue police box? No, inside it's going to look different. Because I think every Doctor, since this show came back, has had a slightly different TARDIS. Yeah, but every Doctor, since it's come back, has not destroyed the TARDIS. True, you know, every, True. Every, time, every, every iteration, sort of like the TARDIS has changed with every iteration. It's like the TARDIS has regenerated slightly. And it's also, you know, the blue police box, although it's, a, it's a, also been a slightly different blue police box, Within the new yeah. series, um, over the over the over the regenerations, um, I don't know. I mean, so I can I'll be watching the new series, uh, but um, you know, the moment there's something that I don't like, and I mean, really, really, really don't like, is probably the moment I'm I'm probably gonna sort of like call it a day on Doctor Who because uh, okay. you know I'm I'm sort of like 
I'm I'm a bit fed up with um, all, all these changes to my favourite franchises. And I'm not bothered about it being a woman doctor. I'm just but I'm just um, a bit worried like you about how how the writing is going to be handled. Yeah, no, Whitaker is going to be okay. It's Chib, not my question. And it's going to be interesting to see um, how they do this. Um, some fans have found hope in the fact that the doctor's first word after she regenerates isn't related to her being a female other than to just say brilliant, you know, and so it's just not some obviously feminist can't comment. And so some people um, take some comfort in that going yeah, in. Yeah, you know, so like, um, well, she's obviously not going to have any dialogue spiraling down in space, but we no. do know that the regeneration energy that's building up within her is probably what's going to save her life. Yes. You know, because she's still kind of regenerating. Because I think when they regenerate, it takes them about 13 hours to fully... So I like take on that form, doesn't it? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, a nice cup of tea helps. But <laughs> Yeah, she ain't going to be getting a cup of tea anytime soon. <laughs> she's yeah. got to land first. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, I kind of like your idea of being picked up by unit and um, and being earthbound for a while. Um, yeah. Knowing, knowing that doesn't, you know, that makes sense for them. Budget, bu- budget as well. Yes. So 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 half of the series is her back with Unit. Maybe they even haul out Bessie. I hope they haul out Bessie. If 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 I'm right, and this is going to be this is going to be the the reintroduction of Unit in the in the new series, and they haul out Bessie, I will be so happy. Yeah. And, you know, hauling out Bessie. You know, Bessie's very much a woman's car as well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, as in, I can actually imagine. You know, a modern day so like. Uh, a modern day sort of like a woman, you know, you know, being on the eccentric side, driving around in Bessie. Yes, yes, but, and um, I also wouldn't mind seeing Whitaker in the Coolmobile. I wonder if they still have that old concept car. I think that was actually John Pertwee's. <laughs> yes, it, it was. Um, oh, was his in, in real life? You mean? Yeah, he owned that. He was he, that, that oh, was wow. his concept. Okay. I, think. I don't know. Maybe maybe Sean Pertwee knows where it is. Um, <laughs> they can ask him. Because there's actually a, there's actually quite a funny interview on one of the on one of the um, on, on one of the John Pertwee adventures I've got, where he he drives into Pebble Mill at one in in the Who mobile. Oh God! <laughs> and and it's and it's been he's been he, he tells a story uh, there. He's like, I've been driving it on the road and I got pulled over by the police, but they let me go because I was a doctor. <laughs> Or, or something like that. I can't remember the edge of that story, but it was something, something to to that effect. So it was, you know, that 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 was quite funny, and the, you know, he, he was he was a total eccentric, was John Pertwee. A lot of them, um, yeah. uh, a fair few of the of the Doctor Who actors have been varying degrees of eccentric, which is, I think, part of why they've been able to play him so well. Mm. Yeah, and the funny thing was, Pertwee was the only one of the actors out of the, out of the Doctor Who, out of the various incarnations of Doctor Who, Pertwee was the only one to actually play it completely straight. I noticed that. I was I was rewatching my my all time favorite uh, Third Doctor uh, story, The Time Monster. It's the one where they end up in Atlantis for a bit with uh, Ingrid Pitt as the Queen, and uh, and he did he did he played it very straight. And that worked for his iteration. You know, he's so. sort of like his his version was very much uh, was very much authoritarian and and part of the establishment. Um, even though uh, he spent a majority of his time railing against the establishment on Earth, 
he was sort of part of that establishment. Yeah, yeah. And that's what made and it I, cool. And I, and I think, I think Pertwee's straightness actually contributed to the audience accepting the off-the-wallness of the fourth incarnation played by Tom Baker. They were such wonderfully con- you know, con- contrasted variations that they both worked. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very effective. And the interesting thing was, um, Pertwee was actually more well-known for doing comedy stuff. Yes. When, when he took on the role. So D- Doctor Who was sort of like probably the only straight role he ever really played. <laughs> yeah, especially when you consider that after Doctor Who, he went on, went on to things like Wardle Gummage, which I haven't watched a lot of, but I've seen enough of it to get the point. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, I used to love Wurzel Gummidge when I was a kid. You know, it's one of my one of my favourite shows, uh, along with The Phoenix and the Carpet, which was another one, uh, a BBC uh, production of a of a, of a well known children's book. Um, and the, did the Chronicles of Narnia, um, Box of Delights, which uh, starred a certain Patrick Troughton in in the in that. Uh, Box of Delights was sort of like perhaps probably around about nineteen eighty seven, I think. Um, that, that was a Another children's uh, fantasy sort of series that I enjoyed, you know. And the thing is, um, you know, we don't actually have TV, children's TV the same now because it's all on CBBC. I think uh-huh. the closest thing we 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 ever got to those sort of things was sort of like the Sarah Jane Adventures. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's um, because the the Phoenix and the Carpet was quite good because it was set in in a kind of Edwardian times i think it was and you know whereas uh, mo- most of the uh, most of the kids tv shows now are set in set in modern day um yeah. from, from what i can see uh but yeah dot who special i i quite enjoyed it um i'm sort of like cautiously looking forward to the new incarnation uh-huh. when it happens um i'm kind of like get getting a bit tired of um, all the hyperbole popping up on my YouTube feed um, about uh, people railing against Doctor Who and um, also railing against the new Star Wars movie. Um, uh-huh. Kind of sick to death for that. Because I, I actually quite enjoyed the new Star Wars movie uh, for the for the reasons that all the uh, diehard fans actually, actually don't like it. I, I enjoyed that new Skywalker who was um, sort of like uh, a lost, lost uh, faith in himself and lost faith in his abilities and 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 had sort of like uh, gone gone to uh, act not act whole to die. I enjoyed that. I felt it was a good progression of his character. It made sense for his character to go that, to go that way. You know, once he was confronted with 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 his own failings, it made made absolute sense for him to go that way. <laughs> So I, I enjoyed that. Um, but mo- moving, uh, and, and plus he got to redeem himself in the end, so I don't see what the problem was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you haven't seen it yet, so. No, I, I haven't had a chance. I've, I've had uh, technical difficulties. My elevators here have been out, so I haven't been able to get uh, down <sighs> to do much. Damn. Yeah, it's been rather impressive, but yeah. So, so how long have your elevators been down? Uh, they, they were down for several days. Between that and a freak cold snap that we've had here in Florida, um, we've all just sort of been homebound. So, so it's been strange. So cold snap, uh, how, how cold is cold? Uh, cold enough to actually snow in Tallahassee, Florida, which hasn't done for like 20 wow. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We, we had snow just before Christmas here. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's supposed to snow there. 
No, it's not. It's supposed to snow in Scotland, not not here in northwest of England. <laughs> not you know, I, I don't think it's supposed to snow. I don't want it to snow. <laughs> it's cold. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd love it. I'd love it if it snowed and it was ninety nine in the shade. That'd be great. <laughs> um, you know, that that way I'd have the best of both things that I enjoy: nice warm weather and snow. <laughs> yes. Um, so moving on um, to another series that we've not really discussed much that's back and I think it's only got a few more episodes to go hasn't it the yeah Librarians. it's only got four more episodes maybe five I haven't looked up the, the number of episodes for this season yeah. well, but it's I, not too many more what I can't believe is they, they, they you know for three weeks they, they were showing two episodes back to back in the States yeah whereas yeah. here in England they've not even got to the bloody uh, they've not even gotten through through showing me the first five. Mm. They've only been showing one I think it's here. because they've got some, some shows that are coming up after Librarians and they needed to double up to make room on the schedule for other stuff coming up. Mm. So. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But it's sort of like, um, I personally think uh, if you're doing that in the States, the UK market should do the same. Because yes. like the, the UK market's losing out on viewers that way. It is. Uh, because at the moment, they, in the UK, it's shown the night after it broadcasts in the States. Oh, okay. But they're only showing one episode a week here in the UK. So they're still, they're still about three, four episodes behind uh, you know, once you get, to, once you get to, to that sort of thing. So in um, terms of discussing spoilers, are we going with the American schedule or the UK schedule? We'll go with the American schedule because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pander to the uh, UK sci-fi channel's whims, you know. Okay. Um, unless they pay me huge amounts of money to keep me quiet, you know, <laughs> which is not going to happen. So no. uh, let's, let's go with spoilers. Um, yes. I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought the last one, though, was a, was a little bit of a, you know, wasn't really as strong as the first no, few. No, not, not in terms of the narrative, although I have a feeling that Forrest is going to become a bigger issue down the line, perhaps. Uh, quite possibly, it could be could be something to do with a tethering ceremony. Yeah, yeah. I also think, and I and I and I tweeted this, and um, Dean Devlin liked my tweet. I tweeted the theory that uh, that um, in order to resolve this relative to Jenkins, he's the one who's going to ultimately be going undergoing the tethering ceremony and becoming immortal again. Yeah, but who with? Who with? I'm thinking Nicole. I think I'm thinking they're going to resolve that to where it's Nicole. Yeah, but but she's now mortal, right? No, she's not. He gave her his immortality to save her save her life. Okay, well, um, his his question where it might fall down because logically Nicole's already immortal. Yes. Now, and um, the whole point of the tethering ceremony is for two mortals to wrap, be grounded to the library, and um, as part of that, they both become immortal. Yes. So does that the mean? Only- does that mean that, that yeah. Nicole's going to be twice immortal or something? <laughs> yeah, that could work. Or I could see a situation where in the last episode, um, in terms of the character dynamics, um, Ezekiel called Cassandra out on the fact that she doesn't really, she hasn't really lived a life. She doesn't understand what life is. And I'm thinking there are going to be some developments where at the end she decides that her relative lack of a of a life is um, a boon in that she doesn't mind being tethered to the library because she doesn't feel that she's missing out in quite the same way that others who have actually led more of a life would be. 
I can actually, I can actually, that logically makes sense for uh, Cassandra to be tethered to the library, insofar as that she's, she's actually the most knowledgeable out of the librarians when it comes to the use of magic. Yes. Um, second only, really, to Jenkins. Yes. Plus, they've established that she and Jenkins have had that back and forth about the use of magic and about immortality back when she had the tumor. And it was established that, you know, she's bi and she's got, had a bit of a crush on Jenkins. Um, so, and Jenkins is already spoken for, so there's not going to be the whole physical intimacy thing because he's the whole Sir Galahad, you know, made a vow to one woman, ultimate, you know, embodiment of courtly love thing, which is adorable. And so there's that. And so they would actually be compatible on a lot of thematic levels. Uh-huh. So if, if, if it's not Nicole, um, the second, the second, the second uh, option is Cassandra. I, I think reason- it makes more sense for it to be Cassandra than it does for it to be Nicole, because Nicole's already a model. That, and she's the fact that she's only a, a one-season character. I mean, she's the the original Guardian, and unless you're a super fan who actually remembers back to the first film, I haven't seen the films in a while. I had to actually refresh, refresh my memory. Yeah, and so. you know the, the 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 really weird thing about that is um, I seen the um, I seen the films. I watched all three of them back to back um, again um, about six months ago. So it's mm. relatively fresh in my memory what Nicole actually looked like in in that film, and I, I just find it quite strange casting that they've actually cast Rachel Nichols. Uh, yeah. Because she's nowhere near as so like she she's she's quite tall is is a uh, is Nichols but she's nowhere near as tall as a uh, as Sonia Sonia Welga yes um or, you know or nowhere near as well built as Son- Sonia Welga yeah was. yeah yeah so he kind of like uh, I, I've had to dissociate from that movie a little bit in order to sort of like be able to accept Nichols in the role yeah yeah so. But they, I, yeah, the other, the other issue is that because she is um, a one-season guest star, unless they're planning to bring her back more permanently, you know, she's not going to be staying. The actress isn't going to be staying enough to play a role like that. Mm, they could bring her back because she, I don't, as far as I know, she's not tied to anything at the moment. True, um, You know, true. she, she, uh, and, and, you know, it makes sense for him to bring her back because she's, uh, she's already got quite a strong fan following from the, um, from, from Continuum when she did that. <clears throat> so, um, you know, so, so it makes sense to, so I bring her in as an as a new character at some uh-huh. point. But I think for her to come in on a more permanent basis, someone's gonna to have to go on a more permanent basis. Yeah. And I I got a feeling it could you know, if if they were to do if they were to go about things that way, uh the, the person who makes sense for her to go would be probably bad. Yeah. You know Although because... if, that, if that's the case I would I would very much um miss her. Um actually I like Baird a lot. I, I like her a lot. I mean, I think she's, you know, I think Rebecca Remin, Remin, um, has actually done a done done a pretty good job with all the comedy beats and and um, and and so forth. He's one of the more dramatic stuff. I am, I am with, uh, I'm with, I'm with Eve Baird though on one thing. While it's been structurally necessary because of Noah Wiley to have him go in and out of the series narrative. Um, the fact that he keeps going in and out on a strictly narrative level and is now apparently left without even saying goodbye 
I'm at the end of my tether with that behavior from him. And I was totally rooting for, for Eve to just unload when she finally unloaded in, 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 the, in, the, in the forest episode and said, yeah. I can't take this anymore. I think what might make sense is, you know, Eve would go off to Dota. Yes. And um, and Nicole would come in and, and take her place as a guardian. So so they'd have a so 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 you'd still have the the opportunity to sort of bring Eve in and out of the series um as a, as a as a continuing character, you know, yes. there's still that evolution there. Um, which you know, and I think that kind that that kind of work, and it kind of makes sense given that they bought Dosa back when they didn't actually need to. No, they didn't need to, which means they're going to whatever happens, they're going to play a role in something. So, mm-hmm. and Dosa have been you know Dosa headhunted Eve in the last series. So yeah, yeah, you know, um, so it 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 kind of makes sense for it to go there. Um, but you know, again, I'd 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 actually be like you, I'd miss her, I'd, I'd miss her chemistry with the other uh, with the other characters. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that that helped me adjust the fact that Noah Wiley wasn't there on a regular basis in the first few seasons was Re- Rebecca Romaine as as Eve Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, she she helped me ground me in the new iteration to the point where I could actually deal with it. Because without that, I was I was freaking out of the fact that we weren't getting Noah Wiley, and um, and she's she's what made that work for me. So I would really miss her. You did I mean you know I, I kind of accepted all, most of the characters pretty quickly. Um, the one that took a while to grow on me, and he's, he's also the one that I think actually grown the most as a character over the over the over the seasons is Ezekiel. Yes, yes, and. And, and John Kim, who plays Ezekiel, Ezekiel, even said in interviews that, that he's had, you know, some, some really cool character stuff to do. And he's been very happy with the series. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of liked where I liked the, I liked the episode uh, with, 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 his, with his pet, with his uh, adopted mother in there. Uh, oh, that was brilliant. You know, the, uh, you know, the, the one about Santa's brother. Yes. <laughs> That was that was pretty epic, although not as epic as as uh, Bruce Campbell as Santa. Nothing will ever touch Bruce Campbell as Santa. Um, no, nothing will ever touch that. I mean, I watched that episode again just prior to Christmas. <laughs> I just uh, I've made that my you know that that's uh, one of my favorite Christmas episodes. Now that and the two Eureka ones and uh, and and the one at Warehouse Thirteen one, I kind of watch those annually every Christmas. <laughs> You know, and the only reason I'm watching Eureka at the moment, so I've been rewatching it, is because it's now on Amazon Prime as a as as something that can that can be viewed freely as part of your subscription sort of thing. Whereas I don't know how long it's going to be uh, on that, so I'm I'm trying to watch through it as quickly as possible before they they, they take it off Prime. Yeah, I, I think they the they do rotate stuff off Prime, but they keep stuff on Prime longer than they do on Netflix. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about Netflix, they've still not got the final season of the um, of of of, My- of Michael Emerson's prior show yet. Oh, really? Oh, wow, that's really mm. sad because it's 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 an abbreviated season, but it's an awesome final season. Mm. Yeah, because I'm hoping they bring it on soon because I'd like to see how that show ended. Yeah. Um, you know, and and do it legally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. 
Um, but I'd sort of like uh, librarian so far. I'm sort of like really enjoying it. Um, I think Nichols has actually done really well with Nicole. Yeah. Yes. Um, given the fact that you know a lot of the lot of the fans that actually remember the movies. Uh, might have had difficult, might, might have had difficulty accepting them, but I think she's actually played it brilliantly. Yes, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. You know, so like uh, the only problem I have is is her physical appearance versus the physical appearance of the original actress. Yeah, you know, yeah. But that that that's not Nichols' fault. That's down to casting. <laughs> that's down to casting, and I think they, I think their deci- their their decision was, a, she's good in the role, and b, we could use her fan base. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so they, you know, they, they decided that was more important. I'm fine with that. Yep. Um. So we got um got a new episode of Librarians coming up this Wednesday. Um. I've not seen the preview. Um. So it's it's, it's a Cassandra episode. It's uh, she has a um she has a, a bit of a, an emotional crisis, and it's it's her turn to temporarily temporarily leave the library and figure out what life is about. Ah, so basically, it's basically going to be uh, following on from Ezekiel, so like saying, "Well, you've not really lived life, you know." Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I find I found that quite a fun scene, but it's also um, you know, it's quite a difficult scene as well because sort of like um, the the reason she's not really lived life is because of the brain tumor because she was yeah, she was she was terminally well. ill. You know, <laughs> you know, so it was hardly her fault. <laughs> no, it was not her fault. It was not her fault. Yeah. Um. It's, it, if, if anything, it was her parents' fault because she talked in season one and season two about the fact that that when her parents, who recognized how brilliant she was, found out she had a tumor, they treated her like a broken toy and just um, ignored her to a great extent mm-hmm. and, and didn't give her the, the emotional support that she needed. And she would, she would not be in the, in the fix that she's in, the fix that Ezekiel called her out for. If they had been um, a little more functional, yeah. Um, talking of which, um, talking about one of the other characters, uh, Stone. Um, he he had that middle bit of a relationship a with, with, with the, the reporter. With yeah, the reporter. and like you said in your review, I, I hope that we see her back on a recurring basis because I feel like there's more there, or there could there could be more there. And I'm not just talking about the romance, which I think would be very cute to watch. But I think just in general, in terms of her as an individual character, I think they could do some stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they could as well. I mean, you know, sort of like uh, it was interesting that she knew so much about the library and knew so much about Dosa and all of this. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to see an episode where it's just her and it's set, it's set prior to the, the, the episode with the trees and it's just and she, her finding out. Stuff, yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to see that episode um, because and, I, I think the actress did a pretty good job with what she was given and, you know, she, she was likeable. Yeah. And to go back to my conversation at the beginning, if you watch Librarians and you watch Supergirl, Librarians, when they do romance, they handle romance the way I wish the CW shows would handle it. They integrate it into the show holistically so that the whole narrative progresses. Mm-hmm. And, and that even if they hit, hit speed bumps, the speed bumps... Um, enhance the narrative. They don't de- derail the narrative. The problem is most people that watch Supergirl probably don't watch Librarians because they think, well, Librarians is a cheesy family show, <laughs> and and that's that's probably the attitude. I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing: you you won't get Jeff watching Librarians. Um, you know, he, he'd uh, he'd have even less tolerance for that than he would for for Legends of Legends of Tomorrow. 
Yeah, whereas I adore Legends and, and Librarians and Doctor Who, all three of which he either hates or would hate. Mm. So, yeah. Well, I personally don't think he gets Doctor Who. You know, it's like, uh, I think Doctor Who's probably a little bit too British for him. It's too British. It's too British. Um, part, of, part of my, part of the reason I get Doctor Who is I'm, I'm the PBS generation. I grew up watching PBS when it was BBC America before BBC America. And so I was, I was watching as much British stuff as American during my formative TV watching years. And it just, I could, I could make my way around most of the regional British accents by the time I was 12 or 13. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I never, I never got the complaints that a lot of American fans got of, I can't understand what they're saying, or, you know, this just doesn't make sense, or my God, that's the sensibility. You know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get any of that. I, I just adored British stuff. Yeah, and, um, it's, yeah. It's it's quite a funny one, really. <laughs> you know, yeah. the whole the whole uh, British US divide in terms of uh, you know what what culturally is fine here in the UK and and, uh, and what what is culturally fine in the US. <laughs> yeah, like for instance, in the US, Doctor Who has has never been considered a um, a children's show or a family show. Mm-hmm. It, it airs after it airs in in terms you Brits understand it airs at nine um, o'clock. It, it it airs either pre watershed or or just about watershed. Yeah, since, since that's who returned, it's kind of like uh, in in the UK. Um, it's no it's no longer got the tea time slot I used to have. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it used to be on around about so like uh, five forty five, something like that. Uh-huh. Whereas, whereas these days, uh, the earliest slot it's going to get is maybe about 7pm, half 7. Um, and then there's going to be some of weeks where it's going to be on about 8 o'clock or something like that. But it's sort of like, it's, it's, um, I think since it's returned, it's, it's no longer regarded as, as much of a, of a kid's show. I think a lot of the baggage, you know, the, the kiddie show baggage, it was actually written as part of the BBC drama department, even way back when. Yes. Sort of thing. But it was sort of like written with a, with, with, with a family audience in mind, but with, with it in mind to sort of like educate children um, on, 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 on various historical things, hence the use of time travel. Yeah, and yeah. Like that. And, and it's gotten away from that a little bit too much. I when, think. I, when I was watching it, um, I didn't know it was actually a serial for the longest time until I started buying the episodes on VHS and was watching the original series serial cuts of the episodes because I got what's called omnibus episodes. Yeah. In the U.S., they, they would give us omnibus episodes, which is bizarre because for a long time I just regarded Doctor Who as a series of TV TV movies about these characters. God. And I I would basically get every Sunday from twelve noon until however long it took the omnibus episode to air. Usually they'd average an hour and a half. Occasionally you get one that was closer to two and a half or three hours. Yeah, that'd be like and war games. <laughs> that that'd be like like war games or um talents talents of Wang Chiang, stuff like that. And 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 US fans just learned to sit there from noon until however long it took to air. So you'd be sitting there from noon to one thirty usually or at the longest noon to like three o'clock. And we simply learned to do to do that. Yeah, was where and, we, we, we were waiting a whole week for the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I actually, it took me a while to adjust to the fact that this was actually a serial, that this was supposed to be half hour installments. When I, when I first got my first VHSs and I was listening to the theme music eight times and watching and rewatching the beginnings of each episode again, I'm like, 
what is this? You know, it's like alien to me. But um, but yeah, it was it was a very it was very strange. I spent my teen years just watching Doctor Who on Omnibus. The the weirdest stretch was um, they had, uh, they were airing the fourth Doctor episodes. Um, from 12 to 1.30, and I would watch it from 12 to 1.30, and then there was a period of three weeks where I'd watch Doctor Who followed by the Oedipus Trilogy, Sophocles' Oedipus Trilogy. Mm. So I'd go from Doctor Who to Oedipus, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus Ecolotus, and Antigone over the course of three weeks. And then you get Doctor Who, and then you get I, Claudius. <laughs> yes. I actually watched I, Claudius for the first time when I was nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, that was... um. Yeah, and it, it was perfectly normal, and it was perfectly fine, and I and I loved both Doctor Who, and I loved the um, the the Sophocles plays. Um, I my entertainment tastes have never been binary. It's never been one thing or the other. I I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go from Doctor Who to Oedipus Rex to episodes of Scooby Doo happily. I don't care. You know, it's all entertainment to me. Yeah, and, I, I, I've always been kind of the same. I mean, I've gone from Doctor Who to uh, Starsky and Hutch. To um, something like Blake Seven to um, Wacky Races. Yes, and yeah, I, I mean that's that's me. That's I used me. to love Wacky Races. <laughs> <laughs> wacky Races was like the best thing Hanna Barbera ever did. I think that and Hong Kong Fooey. <laughs> Can you not believe there was only actually one season of Hong Kong Fooey? That is criminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was as popular over over here as some of the other ones. Oh man, you know, it's all like Hong Kong Fooey, only one season, yet um, you ask anyone of my generation in, in the UK if they remember Hong Kong Fooey, they'll go on for it, they'll go on about it for hours. Oh wow. <laughs> uh, that and Top Cat, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and Scooby-Doo, I, I hated Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> Scrappy kind of annoys me, um, although I did appreciate the fact that in the later iterations of Scooby-Doo, Daphne got a bit bigger role. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, I think that's probably a good point to actually uh, introduce Julian Chambliss. Uh, so we're going to bring Julian Chambliss on now uh, with his uh, Beyond Impossible interview with uh, Stacey Robinson. Um, so, so that's that's it for now, folks. Thanks, Ian. Uh, this is Julian Chambliss here for another session of Beyond Impossible. Beyond Impossible is really inspired by the idea when creators of color imagine in the public square, this can seem beyond beyond what people can believe. Uh, it's just so impossible. So my goal with this project is to sort of talk to creators of color about their work and their influences and bring those discussions to uh, the listeners and readers at Sci-Fi Pulse. So I have the great honor today to talk to uh, Stacy Robinson. Stacy is an Arthur Stromberg Fellow. He completed his Master's of Fine Art at the University of Buffalo. He's originally from Albany, New York and graduated from Fayetteville State College, State University with a Bachelor's of Art. His art speculates futures where Black people are free of colonial influences. Uh, he currently is an assistant professor of graphic design at the School of Art and Design at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, Stacey, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, I have a 
couple of quick questions and we'll sort of like make this into a conversation. But the first question I want to ask you, because of like your, your work as a sort of academic artist, but also a very public artist, is that I think historically we, we can argue a lot about how the, the Black imagination has been a powerful tool of shaping the Black experience. I think your work really speaks to this in, in terms of like your, your work imagining a sort of like post-colonial uh, Black experience. Can you talk a little bit about how you um, this is sort of discover your artistic practice? How do you develop yourself into this art artist that we might associate with, I think it's important to say, Afrofuturism, right? Like you are often associated with Afrofuturist artist narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, you know, I have my contentions with the term, as a lot of people do. However, um, I, I think the term is kind of limiting in, in its um, definition, but also how many people um, who look at it as this kind of really cool Black phenomenon um, kind of scribe it and only looking at um, music, for example, right? Or right. looking at certain key points in Black literature. Right. I'm actually, um, and a lot of us are actually looking at what is not talked about as much, which is the why we make the work, right? So why am I looking at spaces outside of colonialism? And I argue, and this might get into one of the, your other questions, but I actually argue that we are um, under colonialism globally, right? So it, I have to speculate outside of this space in order to imagine being free. It's really difficult to even imagine being free in a space where we are still under colonization and we celebrate um, our colonization, you know, through mm -hmm. holidays, for example. It's really simple for me. So how did I get into this work? It, it came from my former readings, for example, um, coming up reading uh, John Henry Clark or Chancellor Williams or um, Shikanta Dia. And I started looking at, I started looking at how we assess where we live at and how we assess freedom. And it's really difficult to even define things like what is black, right? So I look at very simple things and to ask the broader questions. Uh, for example, you know, I, I, I believe that it is difficult for us to define what black is inside of colonialism because I look at blackness as a response to colonialism. It is a response to that, more so a reaction to that, not necessarily something that is that actually liberates us, a term that liberates us. And why do I say that? So I say that because we cannot define what it is when we're still in that space, um, inside of, of that space where we're not free. We can only respond to that or react to that. So I think what you're, what you're, what you just described is really complicated. And I want to Okay. Take a moment, slow down, and, and give the listeners a chance to sort of like understand what I think that you're saying. Yeah. So I'm going to follow up here with like, when you say we don't know what blackness is, right. uh, because it's sort of we're with, within the system. This is, this is I think, something that a lot of scholars that, that sort of talk about the creation of identity or, or narrative and counter narrative mm -hmm. recognize as a really important point of, right. of sort of like native uh, artistic production and how the sort of like imaginary, the sort of fantastic offers a really important sort of tool. And the, and the case in point here, for, for people of African descent in the Western world, they only have a reference point that is filtered through the experience of oppression. And, right, and right. so because of that, anything they create is sort of tinged by that. Is that sort of what you're, you're, you're talking about? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. So that's, a, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I try to bring that conversation to my entire audience. So one of the things I ask in the opening of every one of my talks, I ask, 
do you honestly believe, and I asked this very multicultural um, audience this, do you honestly believe that we can live together in an integrated space, sharing economic, environmental, and political resources equally? Can we do those things equally? And I usually get, let's say out of 10 people, I might get two hands that say, yeah, I absolutely believe that. So then I go into whatever lecture I'm talking about, and I close asking that same question. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, sometimes I've gained some people with the talk, sometimes I've lost some with the talk. Um, never has an entire audience said, yes, I absolutely believe that we can live in this space sharing all these things equally. So then I have a follow-up question at the very end. So regardless of what you believe, where do we go from from there? Where do we go from that point? Where do we go? And it's really, it, it's, it's made to make our make the audience think about our positioning. Um, we like to say that we are. We like to say that we believe in equality, but we really. I, I don't think that we really do. I don't really believe that we we do. And I say believe in it as, and we don't really want it. Um, equality. So, for example, white supremacy and racism can only exist when there's inequality. And that is tied so much into capitalism mm, okay. that every in order for us to be equal, America, our, its entire structure and its influence on the world would have to be dismantled, right? So we really need, we would have to remix the entire planet, <laughs> right? And in, in order for us to think about this, in order for us to really understand this or even to have this, I really believe we need to be out of this space. Um, and that, that gets into the more speculative science fiction, you know, realms of imagination, right? And I grew up in comic books and watching science fiction and horror movies. So these, I've seen science fiction become science fact, right? right? Um, so, the technology, say again? So I think that's a, a great segue into okay. thinking about your your practice, right? So. Um, you know, hearing what you're saying about um, the, influence, the influence of colonialism, the power structures, and the need for imagination as a tool of liberation, right? A, liber a liberatory yes. tool. Yes. Like you, you are an artist and you're imagining yes. black, you know, black spaces or, or counter black spaces. Uh, I think about a project, um, our listeners, you are a collaborator with John Jennings, who also appeared on, on uh, Beyond the Possible. Uh, mm -hmm. The two of you together are Black Kirby, which imagines or reimagines the comic creations of Jack Kirby through this sort of Afrofuturist realm. So uh, Afrofuturist lens, where you sort of like take the sort of Black culture and the Jack Kirby art uh, and through the whole sort of like, really the whole retinue of his, his perhaps more, more influential comic work and reimagining it through this sort of like black experience. So when we think about the intersection of your practice as an artist who imagines these counter black spaces or reimagines free from a sort of colonial structure, um, artistic objects, um, how how are you sort of implementing this sort of post-colonial, decolonial, liberatory practice? What are the objects that we see when we, we see a Stacey Robinson artistic piece? You said, what are the objects? Yeah, like, what, what are we seeing? Okay. What, what, should, what should the audience be, like, how should the audience interpret your, your work? And we'll talk a little bit more about, like, your, your many projects in, in a moment, but I, I really want people to, to understand the iconography that might be commonly associated with, with you. Absolutely. So, in my work, um, you'll see a lot of continuing 
um, repetitions. You'll see Saturn referenced in my work a lot. Um, and in that, I'm thinking about Sun Ra Saturn, right, as our mm-hmm. space of escape, mm-hmm. as our space of peace, right? I'm also, I'm referencing um, Stevie Wonder Saturn, who's also referencing Sun Ra, right? So I'm, I'm paying homage to the, the history that, I, um, that has inspired me in that as well. It's really important that in my work, you see my influences. So a part of my work, you will see Romare Bearden. You will see um, Michelangelo. You will see um, Aaron Douglas. You will see Emery Douglas. You will see John Jennings. Right. You will see a you you can look at my work and see my influences. And in that, it's a way of keeping the ancestors alive, mm. specifically, you know, as a practice. I do that specifically, but also really conversing with my contemporaries. Right. So some of some of the other motifs you'll see, you'll see um, red, black and green. Right. Balanced mm. with um, other um, sometimes with red, white and blue. <laughs> right. Um, you'll see those types of of um, interactions with those, with those colors. And some of these things are meant to be very, very clear indications of what I'm talking about. So Emory Douglas's, I referenced Emory Douglas's manifesto. And in this, he has um, 11, I believe it's an 11 point manifesto where he's talking, one of the points of that is art should be so easy to understand that a child can interpret it, right? Mm, right. I, I, that is very, very important to me. As someone who grew up in the late 70s or, um, you know, the 70s and 80s of, right. of, of fine art, um, I was inspired by people, by artists like um, Ernie Barnes and, and uh, Charles Bibbs, for example, whose work was very easy to understand these points of black celebration. So mm-hmm. even though the, the subject matter many times is very dark, right? The possibilities of the future in my work are very bright. And I want my audience to hang the work on the wall and be inspired by that. Um, okay. it, it's, it's very simple for me. So there are a lot of motifs. You'll see things like black angels, for example, or these these connections to ideas of, of black religion and how we think about that in connection to Afrofuturism as well. Cause I think it's only in Western culture where those things become departmentalized as mm-hmm. in science okay. are different for mm-hmm. us. It's always the same. Like that, that's just, that's always been the same the way that I think about it, the way that many of us think about it. So I actually put that into the work in ways that make it very easy to understand. Okay, okay. So when when we think about your work um, as a sort of fine artist, and then it's important to recognize that uh, as a working uh, faculty member, you, you're you're a working artist. You were you required to do shows to have uh, sort of solo expositions in a museum setting, which is a very mm-hmm. formal setting that you know most of our uh, every every listener knows they've been in, inside a museum and, and understand that. Um, but you're also, as you mentioned. And as your work in Black Kirby indicates, a fan of comics and science fiction, which of course is the bread and butter of the sort of sci-fi pulp audience. And some of your projects like um, Black Kirby um, sort of really sort of take the aesthetics of comics, which, you know, is a global aesthetic right. and, 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 and bringing into that world, the world that you described, that's sort of the practice right. you described. And so you have a number of projects, Black Kirby is one that I'm very familiar with, I'm a huge fan of. But you all have a project like Kid Code, um, yeah. and you, you recently published uh, or collaborated on a project called uh, I Am Alfonso Jones. And both of these, all of your projects, I think, um, when we're talking about comics, all, you know, comics are a collaborative practice. And I don't want to slight uh, your collaborators in these projects, but 
uh, allow you to sort of name them. But let, tell us a little about these projects and how, how listeners can follow up and, and sort of find these, these projects and anything new that's coming out. Um, sure, sure, sure. So um, the latest project that Black Kirby and Tan Lee who is Damian Duffy, he's another collaborator, um, collaborates with Black Kirby a lot. Uh, our latest project is I Am Alfonso Jones, is written by Tony Medina, and the book is um, with two books, a subsidiary of uh, Lee and Love, an imprint of Lee and Love, okay. um, books. And it, it follows the story of Alfonso, who is um, a, a boy, I'm, I'll keep it really brief, I don't want to give too much away, but in that he is is the first Black Lives Matters based or first Black Lives Matters inspired graphic novel. Okay. Um, the way it's being understood. And it follows Alfonso post his death as he is introducing us to many other people who have been killed due to police violence. So Ahmed Diallo, um, Eleanor Bumpers, Anthony Baez, to, to name a few. And we follow what happens post his death and how his life and death actually affect not only the community, but globally um, what, that, what his death means and his life means. Um, it's my first graphic novel. That's the longest book I've made so far. Okay. Um, and I did the pencil work on it. And I did about a third of the inks. Okay. And your project, Kid Code? Yeah, Kid. so Kid Code is, it is our Doctor Who meets Green Lantern um, <laughs> meets hip hop in the way that we love hip hop. Um, it's, it's an inspired story. So it's, the first issue is 40 pages. The next um, two issues will be 40 pages a piece as well. So it's a three-part story. I am very much behind on a book, but I do plan to be done with that second issue in in about a month from now too so i'm working on that every day actually and kid, um, and kid co is you john jane yeah. damian duffy so, yep kid co yep exactly that's the team so it's black kirby and tan lee and and that is published through rosarium publishing it follows kid code father time and kid code's uh, partner roxy clockwise as they are seeking these shards with these shards of of the voice of god <laughs> which was the first word which was yo that organized the universe and it the that voice was stolen and corrupted to create um the chaos that we see now and and it was corrupted by this entity called the power um and the power you know there there are many many metaphors in the book and i don't want to give those away i actually want the the audience to pull out some of these things there's a lot of easter eggs a lot of research um, that goes into this book and the three of us have really written this or plotted this together that's how we do the this story and it's it's definitely a fun project um and like i said number two and number three will be probably coming out in the fall i plan to finish the second issue in, um by the end of summer so hopefully it'll be coming out in maybe october with rosario publishing right so uh, for these sort of graphic novel things i know that you've been at the show the stromberg um black black comics festival before you went to yeah. uh the king day weekend yes. <laughs> yeah. and, you went to the New York Comic Con, I think, with Alfonso. Alfonso. I did. Yeah. Yep, that's where we debuted it. Mm-hmm. This and year. Are you are you planning to be at San Diego um, this summer or coming? Diego soon? Comic Con. Um, <coughs> maybe. I'm not sure. 
I said um, if um, I take, you know, the graphic novel adaptation of Kindred were are nominated for an Eisner Award, I would definitely go because I did some some production work on the book. Um, and I would definitely want to be there for that if it were nominated. Um, I, I was, I'm not sure if I'm going to go. I don't, I'm not sure if we're going to um, have a table. I have to talk to the publisher about that. I'm just putting together my schedule. So some dates are booked, but some are not. Um, I've never gone to San Diego Comic-Con. And that's something that I need to make happen. <laughs> so I said I was going to go this year. So if I, um, I may be able to do that. I still have to plan it. Though. Okay. Well, you know, um, I, I said this would be a relatively short conversation. I, I can, I, I'm sure the listeners can, can tell from just this short amount that there's a world of Stacey Robinson's work, uh, you know, intellectual world, and actually a huge, huge amount of work that that you uh, put out there um and you're primarily a digital digital work yeah right? you're primarily yeah I, I i paint traditionally but most of the time i make my work digitally because i'm trained as a graphic designer right so and that, i think it's that, really important because i'm sure having heard this conversation a lot of our, our listeners are going to want to know what can I see some of this, the, the, some of this work? And so where can people find you online? Um, yeah, my work is um, prime. I mean, I, uh, I'm so over this winter break, <laughs> um, I have the, the next month off. I am actually creating another website. Okay. So for years, I, um, I got rid of my website and I just used my social networking and that has worked very well for me. But um, it's getting to the point now where I need to have a website again. So you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. Um, you can find me on Tumblr. Yeah, what's your um, what's your Tumblr website called? It's Stacy Robinson Portfolio. Okay, Stacy Robinson Portfolio and S T A C E Y Robinson Portfolio dot Tumblr dot com. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you on Twitter or any place like I that? Am on Twitter, so um, is. Prof is P R O F um, S A Robinson. Okay, and you say people can find you on Facebook and Instagram. Is that Stacy Robinson too? Yep. So on Instagram is Stacy S T A C E Y um, A and Robinson S T A C E Y A Robinson on Instagram. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me for Beyond Impossible, which is a part of Sci-Fi Cult Radio. Um, keep up the great work and if you are um, at any of the forthcoming comic book conventions and you're listening to this podcast see check to see if Stacey Robinson is there talking about some of his work or check his check to see if his publishers are there no doubt they will have some of the great things that he's created so um, just check those things out and tune in next time for our next conversation hopefully it will be just as incredible as this conversation with Stacy thanks again Stacy all right thanks have a great day hey everybody this is Daniel Corey writer of image comics Moriarty and Red City and Danger Cats Ludworth and you are listening to SFP now And I'd like to sort of thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank Julian for his uh, contribution to the show and uh, Stacey Robinson for uh, for taking part. Um, I'd also like to uh, thank Raisa, who's still on here with me. Um, so thanks, Raisa, for sort of like, uh, helping out this week. Oh, you're welcome. And we'll be back again really soon.